a sign appeared with these words on it. Mom on strike. Michelle had moved into her children's treehouse and vowed that she was not coming down until a few things changed. Well, a local television station saw the sign and they ran a story on, on the events there. And, and in that story, they interviewed her. But even, even more interesting to me was that they interviewed her husband. And during his interview, he said things like this. He said, I've told the kids to cool it with the back talk. And, I, and, I've, and he said, I've told the kids to, to, that they need to make sure they're doing their chores again. And he said, we're doing everything we can to get her to come down. You know, it makes perfect human sense when, we, when we've offended someone, when you've, when you've done something that's not right, that you want to make it up to that person, you want to make amends with them. It makes perfect human sense, but the, the thing is, it makes no spiritual sense. It doesn't work in the spiritual world. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19, Jesus took great pains to make it clear that if we're depending on what we do to make ourselves right with God, then we're barking up the wrong tree. And uh, if, you, if you pressed each of us deep down into our hearts, what we, what we really want, I believe, is for the power of God to come down. We want the real uh, and, 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 and God to be real. We want him to be present. And we want him moving in our midst and changing hearts and changing lives and changing culture. We, we want God, in a sense, to come down in our minds from whatever treehouse in heaven he occupies and to be here. However, how do you get God to come down, so to speak? What, how do we do that? Because the problem is his standards are so high. They're so high. Do you want to see how high his standards are? Look at, at, Luke, at the opening verses of Luke chapter 17. This is what it says. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. So what's the standard there? The standard is cause no sin. Well, that's already a high standard, but the truth is Jesus was just getting started. After that, he said in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So not only should you cause no sin, you should confront others for their sin, obviously in a spirit of love and, and humility, but you confront them in their sin for, their, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of their spiritual good in Christ. When someone is caught in wrongdoing, when, when they're going down a bad path, we're to, to confront that person. We're to co go to them and talk to them about what's going on in life. And that's a high standard too, and that's a much harder deal for most of us most of us who say, okay, cause no sin, I kind of got that. But then when it comes to, wait a minute, you want me to confront my brother or sister in Christ with the sin in their life? Well, that's a, that's a scary thing to do. But then he's still not done. He's still not finished. He, he, he continued on. He said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. But then he says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So if he sins against you seven times in a day, anybody thought about that? How many of you get frustrated when somebody does the same thing twice to you? Anybody here? 
Okay, some of you are begrudgingly raising your hand there. Seven times a day. Can you imagine that seventh time? Oh, you have sinned against me. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And Jesus says seven times in a day, if he comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So cause no sin, confront others' sin, and forgive any sin. These are really, really high standards. The disciples knew that, that, so it was to some degree, uh, with some degree of desperation that they had to call to Jesus for help in meeting these standards. In verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They heard these things and they said, whoa, what, how is that possible? Increase our faith. I mean, they said these are really, really high standards. And, and then they just, in a real sanctified way, say, the way they said, Lord, you got to help us out here. I don't know how to do this. And Jesus responded by admitting to some measure that they were right, that it is a matter of faith. If you want power to do such things, you need faith. And he replied in verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You want to see the power of God in your life? You, then, you, then you have to have faith. Of course, the, the real question is, and this is where a lot of us, there's a lot of people would understand that. They would agree, say, yeah, 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 we got to have faith. But the problem is, for many of us, we put our faith in the wrong place or the wrong person or the wrong thing. So have faith in what? Well, you know, there are a lot of people in the world today and in the church today that they misplace their faith into such things as their good works. But here, I want to tell you this this morning. This is so difficult for us to digest, but God is not impressed by our good works. It's true. You know, yesterday we did a good work handing out those turkeys, and God is pleased with that, but you know what? He's not impressed with that. He's not impressed with that. Jesus explained this by telling a really a, what for us is a re- very troubling parable. He told about a man who had a servant working in the field, and the servant had been working all day long. And when the time ar- arrived for the servant to come in from the field, the master didn't look at him and say, hey, you know what? You are so tired. Just why don't you come and sit at my table and just relax a little while? Instead, the master said to the servant, fix my meal. And after the servant had done that, the master didn't even say thank, thank you to him. He, he wasn't even really supposed to. The servant just did what he was supposed to do. And, the, and in the conclusion, in verse 10 of this parable, which we really don't like because it, it was re- addressed to the disciples, Jesus said, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, it may be hard for us to understand this ancient context uh, for what's being said in this parable. So what I want to do is I want to bring that into a little bit more of a modern day context. I- imagine that you've been working around the house all day long and you know, you, maybe you had the leaf blower out and then it broke and then you had to go down to the hardware store five times before you finally got the right part and you got it fixed and you finally got everything done, all the work that you were doing outside the house, you got everything taken care of, everything is done, you've worked hard all day long and so, so you're, you're frustrated, you're worn out after getting everything this and you have things break and things go wrong. So at dinner time, when you finally quit what you're doing, you, you, you finally you go inside the house, but you're so tired, instead of fixing a meal, let's just assume that in that moment you say, hey, let's go to Denny's for a, rest, for, for, for a, for a meal. 
Let's just go to Denny's for dinner. So you sit down and you order this meal. And the waitress, after you place the order, she, she just heads off with your order. After a little while, she comes back and she's bringing your plate. And you're so hungry, you're, you're so excited to eat your meal. But now imagine, what would you think if after putting down your plate, she put down another plate, pulled up a chair and started eating? How many of you would say, this is a little odd, right? You, you, you would do, what, this is what you do. You would say, what are you doing? And she'd say, well, I, I got your meal, so I'm going to eat my meal at your table with you. And of course, your answer would be, I knew I shouldn't have eaten at Denny's, <laughs> you know? No, no, you'd, seriously, you probably would say, no, wait, wait a minute, you know, you were just doing your job. You're just doing your job. That doesn't give you the right to sit at my table. That, that, that's just your job. Another, another example in our culture would be if you were buying a house and say you, you called Haley. I'm glad you're here today, Haley, so I get to use you in the illustration. And, and Haley helps you buy a house. And so you get in and she helps you get everything done and all the paperwork, it's all done. You finally get the house and you load up all your furniture in a moving truck and you pull into the driveway of your brand new house and, and you, you empty out that whole moving van to get everything in the house and you pull out that moving van out of your driveway. And just as you're doing that, along comes another moving van that pulls in the driveway and Haley is there in the passenger seat and you say, what are you doing? And she looks at you and she says, well, I helped you get this house, so I'm moving in. You would say, no, wait a minute. You, you, you can't move in. You'd say, you're just doing your job. That does not give you a right to my house. In the ancient world, to sit at the master's table meant that you had the rights of the household. It would mean that you had equal representation with him. And through this parable, Jesus was saying to his disciples, when you have done everything you are supposed to do, that still does not mean you have a right to be part of my household. Just because you've done the good things doesn't mean you have the right to be part of my household. The household of, of heaven is still off limits to you if you're, if you're resting on I did all these good things. Simply doing what you're supposed to do does not qualify you for God's household. Can, can you imagine what the disciples were thinking at this point in time? Because they're, think, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They're thinking, wait, wait, wait a second, Jesus. So we, we gave up our livelihood. We gave up our family. We, we gave up the fellowship of people in our hometowns. We left everything behind to follow you, and you're telling us that doesn't count? That should count. That's supposed to count, Jesus. But Jesus said, God is not moved by the deeds that you do. Now, the truth is, I, I don't like hearing this. Few people do. I, I would like to personally, I would like to believe that because, because I've been good, that God must be good to me and my family and to my church. You know, it's... We, we fall into what I call the older brother syndrome. How many of you remember the story of the, of the prodigal son? And, uh, and at the end of the story, when he finally comes home and the father kills the fatted calf for this son who has gone out and he's wasted everything and he finally comes back home and he's accepted back in as a son again, not as a servant, but he's accepted in as a son. And the older brother comes in from working in the fields, this 
Kind of similar to what the parable Jesus was talking about here. He comes in from working in the fields and, and he hears the sound of this party going on in the house. So he pulls the servant aside. He said, what's going on? Why is there a party? Dad has been depressed since, since my younger brother left and, 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 and now there's a party going. What's happening here? I don't understand this. And they said, your, your brother who was lost has been found. He's home. And, and, the, and the older brother refused to go in. He refused to go in and his dad came out and he said, come on in, your, your brother who has been gone, he's been dead to us, he's now alive. Come on in and be part of this. I've killed the fatted calf and what did the older brother say? He said, I have served you faithfully all these years. I have done the right things. You never killed a fatted calf for me. It's this older brother syndrome of saying, I did these things. So I deserve you to do something for, for you to do something to, for me. This is the idea behind it. He's not moved by good works. We somehow make, we take our good works and we try to use them as bargaining chips before God. Yet God is reminding us uh, that, uh, that our bargaining chips are worthless to him. What can you possibly offer to the creator of the universe? We may believe, for example, that we're being faithful in, by doing our devotions. And so we think, Lord, I've, I've read the Bible every day to my family for 365 days in a row. So, so you have to take away all our family's problems. And if we think our works are buying off God, then God is just reminding us that our good works have no value with him. If we're trying to proclaim our goodness to get God to recognize us as members of his household, it just won't work. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Wow. So all these good deeds, all these things that I bring, bring into God and, and saying, here it is, I've done this good thing, now make, make me part of your household. He says, wait, wait, why are you bringing me filthy rags? Because that's all our good deeds are when you compare it to his holiness. See, that's the problem is that, you know, a lot of people believe that life is like a balancing scale. You know, maybe you've heard something like this. You say, well, I, I know I'm not perfect, but as long as the good outweighs the bad, I'll be okay in the end. You ever heard anybody say something like that, approach life like that? Well, you know what? Here's the problem with that. That's looking at from a, from a very limited human perspective. We need to see it from God's perspective. He's saying that no matter how much you, good you do, it does not qualify you for God's favor that even all of, according to Isaiah 64, 6, all of our good works, all the best things that we could do in life, it, that, that they fall, they do not fall on the good side because when you compare it, the, to, the, to the true holiness of God, it's just not even, it doesn't even compare. We think it's this great polished diamond of good works and God says, that's just a filthy rag. Jesus made it clear that God is not moved by the deeds that we do. So what does move him? What does move him? Well, God is moved when we are desperate for him. Luke 11, 17, 11 through 19 says this. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance 
and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they, were, as, the, as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. When, then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So as Jesus, in this chapter, as he traveled toward Jerusalem, he entered into this village and there were 10 men who had leprosy there who met him. And this disease was so dreaded and so horrible that to keep this disease from spreading, these people had to leave the fellowship of God's community. They, they had to leave their homes. They had to leave the arms of the loved ones. They, they couldn't experience that close, intimate closeness. They had to separate themselves from the rest of society and go outside. They couldn't even stay inside the walls of the town. They had to go outside the city limits, away from their livelihood, away from, from, uh, and away from the fellowship, away from, from uh, the, the fellowship with the people they loved. And as they, as they walked, they had to call out. Listen, think about this. As they walked along, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, everybody stay away from me. How horrible would that be to live in, in that way? Well, it's in this desperate condition the lepers cried out to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, Master, we have done many, many great deeds. Would you come and heal us? No, that's not what they said, was it? They said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Mercy is never something that is earned. Mercy is something that is given that is not deserved. What did Jesus do? He had mercy on them. Why? Because God is not moved by the deeds we do. He's moved by the desperation that we acknowledge before him. You know, this story of desperation plays out in other places in Scripture as well. In Luke 7, we're told about a time when Jesus was invited to have dinner with a Pharisee. And uh, it says in, in Luke 7, verses 36 and 37, it says, One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, now I need to pause there as we're going through this because what happens to you and me is that we don't really understand the cultural context of what's happening here, so we miss out on what this means because when we hear the word sinners, what do we think of? We think of everybody because all have sinned. And, and, and that's true. We understand that's true from New Testament. But in first century Israel, that's not what they meant when they used the word sinner. The, the word sinner did not refer to everybody. A sinner in first century Israel, Israel was actually a class of people. If, if, for example, if you had a physical deformity you were considered a sinner. And that seems so odd to us and so far outside of our way of thinking, but you were considered a sinner because in their mind, that deformity or that issue, that problem was considered as, a, as proof that God was punishing you. That's why the disciples, you remember when Jesus healed a man who was born blind? The disciples asked, was this man born blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents? 
So if there was blindness, if there was some deformity, it had to be because of sin. That was their way of thinking. But then again, also the term sinner also referred to those who had jobs that were considered questionable or immoral, you know, like slave traders, prostitutes, that sort of thing. And this group of people, by virtue of what they did, was considered unclean and alienated from God. So sinners were a class of people defined by immorality or deformity. In this case, this woman was a sinner because of immorality. She had been a prostitute. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. Now in those days, people, when we think about reclining at the table, we think about chairs around the table. That's not how they sat there. The table was very low to the ground and, and they, they would recline on cushions uh, around the table. Their, their left sides, they would, they would lay, lie down on their left sides with their feet facing away from the table. So when you have this round table, picture in your mind, round table with all these people laying out with almost like a clock looking around with all the people laying there and, and, uh, and, and they would lay there and they prop themselves up on their left elbow and then they would eat with the right hand. And that's how they would eat their meals. And it, and, and it was also customary for there to be many, many servants. And if there was some sort of celebrity who was coming to dinner, the servants would bring their families and the friends, <laughs> this is kind of funny, just to watch the celebrities eat. You know, so we're not that, that uh, different. You know, people today, you got paparazzi trying to take pictures of celebrities, you know, having a meal at a restaurant or whatever. They would do that. And so you'd have this crowd of people standing around, kind of, you know, looking through windows. They'd all be there at the windows trying to get in, to get a glimpse of this famous person who was eating this meal. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that, she, that he was reclining, Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet. Now you can see how this happens because he's laying there and his feet are extended away from him. So uh, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, I love this part because the Pharisee just thought that. He didn't say that out loud. But Jesus, even though he hasn't said anything, answered him anyway. I love that. Can you imagine that? When you think something and all of a sudden, let me answer your question. <laughs> this would be a little weird. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender, money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, uh, uh, excuse me, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarius was one day's wage. So they worked six days a week, which would amount to about 300 denarii a year. So you can figure out that. So, so 500 denarii, one person owed 500 which is, which is about 20 months of labor. Now you figure out how much you make in 20 months and you'll know the kind of trouble this guy's in, right? The other one, it was just about two months worth of, of, of debt. So bad, but not nearly so bad. You can, you can deal with that. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, the one, I suppose, to whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus tells the story and then he begins to this interpretation. Then turning, verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which is a basic uh, custom. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which is a common greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, she, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And when he said to her, your sins are forgiven, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, why did this woman do these things for Jesus while the Pharisee ignored even the basic manners and customs of the day? Well, it was because one of them was desperate in her sin. And the other one thought he didn't need anyone to help him. One was desperate in her sin, knew she was in trouble, and the other one thought he had it all figured out. The woman knew that she was in desperate trouble. She knew that there was nothing she could do to make herself clean. There was nothing she could do, but she knew that Jesus was a man of compassion. So she threw herself on his mercy in love and in adoration, and he did for her what she could never do for herself. You know what scares me is that I see a lot of Pharisee in us today. Uh, it's so easy to become so get so tied up in trying to keep our rules that we've forgotten that we're supposed to love God and love people, and that's the root of everything. Isn't that what Jesus said? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. That's a paraphrase. And the second, he said, is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the other laws, all the other prophets, everything else is caught up in these two. If we learn to do those two things, all those other things take care of themselves. And so we forget that we're supposed to love God and love people. So in the end, what ends up happening in us, we love our rules and we hate the rule breakers. And, and that's not what Christ saved us to be. That's not how he lived his life. Here's the truth. You know, Jesus never, ever once excused sin, did he? He never excused sin, not once. But you know what else? Jesus never, ever rejected the sinner, did he? He never treated a sinner like an outcast. What did he do? He went to dinner with them. He, he, he spent time with them. He went to their parties. He loved them but he always spoke the truth to them. We tend to think that somehow God will give us special favor or attention because we keep the rules or because we're good people, but God is telling us not, not to come to him boasting of our goodness. God wants us to come to him acknowledging how deeply we need his grace. It's when we recognize that, that God receives those who come in desperation that we become willing to be, be repentant. God listens to the desperate person. So when I realize where I really am, then my prayer becomes, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. 
It, it, I, I don't pray and say, when I need help, when I need a miracle. I don't say, God, I've been faithful to you. I've done this. I've done that. I've been a good person. I've, I've, I've done good things. I've given money to the poor. I've done all these things. So God, you should heal me. You should help me here in this situation. Instead, we go to him and saying, God, I know that nothing I've ever done amounts to a hill, a hill of beans. All my good works are nothing but a bunch of filthy rags in your presence. And now, God, I'm just throwing myself on your mercy. Would you have mercy? Mercy on me, I need your help. Would you help me? Have mercy on me. God won't accept me because of my goodness, but because my desperation has taken me to the foot of the cross. And if that moves God, then we get some hint of what should move us. I'm going to go back to the ten lepers, and we're going to close with this. But I want you to see something. You remember... What happened at the end of the story? The lepers cry out to Jesus for healing. Jesus moved with compassion for them, said, go and show yourselves to the priest. And, and then it says, as they went. Which there's a whole kind of, all kinds of different messages there. There's something about taking a step of faith because they had to do what he said, even though they hadn't been healed yet. But as they went, they were healed. What happened next? Verses 15 and 16. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Now think about what just happened. As they were going, they were healed. They, they were not yet at the temple. They had not yet been declared clean by the priest. And, and one of these lepers, when he saw that he was healed... He turned back and went back to Jesus. He had not finished even what Jesus had told him to do. Think of everything he was risking at that point. He had just been cleansed and he could see it. Where there were once sores, there was nothing but smooth, healthy skin. He, he knew something was different. And if he would just, in that moment, if he just went a, a few more blocks down the road, then the priest would declare him clean. And once the priest declared him clean, he could go back to his family. He could go back to his livelihood. He could go back into the arms of his loved ones. But instead, what this man did, he risked it all. What, what had changed could change back. He risked it all to go back and give praise to Jesus. I mean, he, he was a Samaritan. And we understand there was great hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. He didn't know what Jesus was going to do when he went back. For all he knew, Jesus would say, oh, oh, there's a Samaritan in the group. Well, forget you. You're not healed anymore. This leopard, leopard did not know what was going to happen, but he knew he had to do something. He was no longer, at that moment, searching for his own gain. It was gratitude. It was thanksgiving. It was praise. That was motivating him. He had to go back. And the degree of his appreciation matched the degree of his former desperation. The message here is the one who has been cured of much praises much. And that change is what, what moves and motivates that person. What drove that leper was love for this one who loved him so much that he would heal his lep leprosy. And as I said earlier today, how, how much do we take for granted every single day? How often 
Are, are we overwhelmed with thankfulness at the thought of having our sins forgiven or, or do we take our forgiveness lightly? You know, where we say, well, you know, I'm thankful for forgiveness, but my sins were not that bad after all. I mean, you know, I'm thankful, but I wasn't that bad of a person. In fact, he's kind of lucky to have me. You know, a story is told of two old friends who bumped into each other on the street one day, and one of them just looked so forlorn, almost on the verge of tears. The friend asked him, he said, well, friend, what in the world has happened? What has the world done to you, my old friend? And the sad fellow said, well, let me tell you, three weeks ago, my uncle died, and he left me $40,000. The guy said, well, that's a lot of money. He said, yeah, but... Then two weeks ago, a cousin I never knew, I never even knew, died and, and left me $85,000, free and clear. And he said, well, it sounds like you've been blessed. And he said, no, no, you don't, you don't understand, he interrupted. He said, then last week, my great aunt passed away, and I inherited almost a quarter of a million dollars. And now this friend was really, really confused. And he said, then, then why do you look so glum? And he said, well, this week, nothing. Gratitude begins where entitlement ends. Anything I think is owed to me, I will not be grateful for. This is why in this time, this culture of entitlement, there's so little gratitude. Because gratitude begins where entitlement ends. When we're ungrateful, it's a sign that we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. It shows that we've started to take the grace of God for granted as, as if we had earned it, as if we deserve it. And the question is, how do we fan the flames of gratitude in our hearts? How do we do that? Well, first, I think we need to slow down enough to see the wonders of this life that he's given to us. We're in such a hurry. We're a microwave generation. Slow down enough to see the wonder of your wife or your husband to see the wonder of your children, to, to slow down enough to, to see the splendor of a sunset painted by God on the horizon. Slow down enough to feel the wonder of a heart that just keeps on beating and lungs that just keep on breathing because he makes that happen. Slow down enough to realize that today, in one meal, you're going to have more to eat than most people in this world will have to eat in the entire day. We need to learn to stop taking the little things for granted because they're, li they're not little things. So the first thing we need to do is slow down. And I think the second thing is we need to take a cold, hard look at ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves about the, the darkness that's still inside, the areas where we struggle. I mean, like, what about pride, especially spiritually, spiritual pride? like the Pharisees had, that's a really tough one for us because by its very nature, pride in us is very hard to see. Because, uh, uh, because if we have pride issues, then we have an inflated view of ourselves, and my pride will tell me I'm fine when that's not the reality. It makes it very difficult to see. It's very insidious. What about prejudice? Do you treat people that are different from you with disdain or disgust? Do you shun them? Do you avoid them? What about selfishness in your life? What about out-of-control anger? What about greed and envy? When we slow down enough to face the dark places in our hearts, then and only then will we truly appreciate the grace of God that covers 
every sin. Only then do we begin to realize how desperate we really are without Christ. When we can see ourselves for what we really are and for where we've really been, and then in that moment we realize that, God, that Jesus still loves us, that he still heals us, that he still uses us, that he still wants us, then we become overwhelmed with gratitude for his grace and mercy. And in our desperation, we run to Jesus and find love and grace and mercy for our broken souls. There were 10 lepers who were healed. But there was only one who returned to give heartfelt thanks to Jesus. My question for you today is simple. Will you be the one? Will you be the one? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that, that in my weakness that somehow you would have spoken. And Lord, for those of us here today, I pray, God, that we would be like that leper, that we would say, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm not going to just run away with the blessings and say, look, look how good life is. But God, we want to, we want to turn to you. And we want to be people of gratitude, not people of entitlement. And I pray, Jesus, that you would have your way and you'd help us during this Thanksgiving season to give you thanks and to be the one who returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.